Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Have you ever had the thought, I just don't have a Keyforge deck good enough to compete in Archon? If so, this is the episode for you. Let's get sweaty. Welcome to Keyforge Public Radio with your host, Zach Armstrong. Today we're talking about everything that's under your control with regards to winning an Archon event. Archon being the Ghost Galaxy defined format as bringing one unadjusted deck already open into a tournament where you're going to play against other people's decks of the same nature. And I've cheekily named this practice power versus purchasing power to talk about how much is under your control regarding doing well at one of these events with the collection you have and what else is under your control regarding uh, making yourself competitive. So we're going to cover a number of things today from practicing with the deck to knowing it to your matchups to meta calls to also looking at the secondary market. Because the complaint I've heard from a number of Keyforge players, and it's not a totally unfair one, right? This is a normal feeling, is that people who are purchasing a really strong deck with a lot of money means that player can overpower better players, or just players of the same skill who haven't purchased or opened a crazy strong deck. So here's the thing, right? There's some truth to that. Otherwise, I'm not sure it would catch on so much, this particular this particular opinion, right? Because buying a powerful deck, it is an advantage, right? That's, that's true. Life in general isn't fair, right? <laughs> and people with lots of money can choose to use it to tip the scales in their favor. In Keyforge, you know, this, this isn't wrong to buy a deck to spend a lot of money on a really good deck. That's great. If you have the money and you want to use it that way, you can buy a powerful deck. Excellent. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. But that deck is going to have weaknesses, right? That deck will have vulnerabilities. It will have bad matchups. It always has an Achilles heel, some small patch on its draconic underbelly, and you're the heir to the throne of Lake Town, right? Its wings are made of wax and feathers, and you're a helpful-looking updraft on a sunny day. <laughs> so something I've said, uh, something I have felt before and heard from others is that they don't own a deck good enough for competing in Archon. And I've got to say, when I scroll through my list of decks, I often go, oh man, I don't know. I don't feel great about bringing any of these in particular to an Archon event. How well could I do? Would I just feel bad the whole time? What's like, would I win any games? I don't know. Right. So I have a number of responses to this, you know, both speaking to myself here and, and the community in general. And I want to walk through each of them with you. My purpose here is that we're going to walk through the factors in competitive success in Keyforge and point out which of these factors you have control over, right? Because you can tune any of these dials in and then make yourself a goal of doing well. And the goal is the one you set, right? Maybe you just want to go, you know, 50-50. If it's a six-round event before a top cut, maybe you're happy if you go three and three. Honestly, that was always my goal at events I went to before the pandemic, which for large and away were actually sealed. Funnily enough, I actually did much better at the Open Archon events. You know, funnily enough, given the talk of our the purpose of this episode. So the things we're going to be looking at, right? So these factors that go into competitive success, whatever your goal is, whether going 50-50, maybe getting a 4-2, or actually making that top cut, which is a great, a very good, a very good goal, right? You got to work, you got to think, you got to be smart, and it's a great goal to work for. 
The factors that go into reaching your goal are deck strength, which is a many variable thing in Keyforge. Like we talked about, even a very strong deck is going to have bad matchups. Another factor is deck knowledge, the knowledge of your deck. It's out, knowing all the cards in the deck, knowing the matchups your deck has, good matchups and bad matchups. Uh, your mindset is a large factor that perhaps isn't talked about a whole lot. Your mindset, right, going into this, are you going in with a bit of a defeatist mindset? Are you going in appropriately confident or overconfident, right? Your mindset is going to have a lot of effect on how well you actually process information and make game decisions in the moment. Another factor is meta knowledge, right? Uh, what are the other cards you're going to be facing? This is especially important, right? Perhaps in sealed. Uh, what's winning at tournaments? What no what knowledge do you have access to? What data do you have access to that could tell you what that would help you on that strategic level of deciding what even to bring to an Archon tournament, right? What's winning? What is the most common Achilles heel I think I might see? at an event. What's popular? What are people going to be bringing? What's hot right now? What are people going to be really excited to try? And what can I bring that will, uh, you know, in a uh, helpful sports-like way, uh, ruin their day, <laughs> right? There's also, of course, um, these factors in winning. There's, uh, you know, getting some favorable chance, some favorable roles, right? Some good luck in your matchups and your draws. So that that is a big factor. And then those matchups, um, sometimes you're just going to be in a tough matchup. You might be an amazing player and get some bad matchups or make one small mistake that then kind of knocks you out of contention for the top cut. And that happens to even the best players. I won't rehash you know specific people's misplays or or um, just bad calls here on the podcast but if you actually look into the play histories of some of the really kind of successful keyforge players that maybe you've heard of if you're a podcast listener or you follow a lot of content everybody's got some events that they didn't do really well at some people you know are very strong players but they've hardly top cut a vault tour yet maybe they weren't playing for a terribly long before vault tours were canceled in 2020 but everybody has these mistakes, right? And these are some of the best players in Keyforge, at least the ones in public that we've seen play. So everybody is subject to that from the best players to you. And heck, you might be one of those best players, right? So I will admit, if you have just a small handful of decks, it's a smaller collection, you might not have that one deck that on its own merit, right, aside from all these other factors that you have under your control, would perform well at a vault tour or a similar level event, right? So here's the thing about not owning a strong Archon deck, right? If you have the discretionary funding available, money you can spend, maybe you can save up a little bit or just strategize with your budget a little bit, this is actually a factor you have control over, right? If you have some money you can save or put aside, you can actually go buy a really strong deck. If your goal is to place well at an Archon event, and you have this funding, you can go search for and buy a strong deck. This factor is actually under your control in most situations if you've got that discretionary funding. I, like many people, usually have more of an affinity for decks I opened myself. So usually I do have a preference for only playing decks I opened, and that's a fantastic and legitimate you know, preference. But I have bought decks on the secondary market because I thought they were fun, and in a few cases, because I was getting what I thought was a lovely deal on a deck that could be Archon competitive viable, especially depending on matchups, right? 
So just know that if you're wanting to have some notable competitive success, if that's your goal, one, hold it with an open hand. It's going to take a while to work at that. Or maybe you get fortunate at an event and you really do skyrocket to the top on top of, you know, a good deck selection, a good meta call and your own skill, right? But if you're wanting some competitive success, if that's your goal, um, not wanting to purchase a deck on the secondary market may be a limiter if you don't open a total rock star of a deck on your own. Now, I do understand that uh, some people, you may be a bit more limited on funds as far as acquiring things from the secondary market. I would say that if you search and find the right decks, especially decks that are a medical, you can find a strong deck that's maybe a little underrated by SAS if you're looking on decksofkeyforge.com, a great deck marketplace, or eBay, where many sellers don't scan the decks into the Master Vault first, right? Uh, you can find a strong deck that's actually going to get you results. I purchased one that I am strongly considering playing an Archon that I got for uh, $80. And I'd say you can find a strong Archon deck if you get really fortunate. You can find it for around $50, right? I don't think that's out of the question. I think around $100, you're getting to a really solid place. And of course, if you're willing to spend a bit more, up to a couple of hundred dollars, then your options are very open to you. Your options are very open to you. It's all about your personal situation, what you're comfortable with, and how much you actually want to tune this factor to your own control about do you own a strong deck. So if you do want to try to top eight a vault tour and have the discretionary money to spend on the hobby and you haven't, you've been against purchasing a strong deck on the secondary market, I, I'd recommend considering it. All right. I'd recommend considering it. I've seen I've seen several strong decks that I'm confident could top eight a vault tour sell for, you know, around one hundred dollars to a little bit more. Right. So it's out there. It's out there. Get with some smart Keyforge friends, either online or in person, kind of strategize, find some decks, maybe test them on TCO if you can and and see what's out there. If you have a game plan and you apply some smarts, talk with some people, I think it's very possible to tune that to your favor. Right. Because owning a strong deck is technically under your control. But you might already have something that could get you to the top eight. And that's that's the other thing, is that this is where relying too much on SAS, SAS, right? The Synergy Anti-Synergy Deck Scoring System could easily be blinding you to a competitive deck in your collection. SAS scores do have some good correlation with win rate, and in many cases, SAS is very helpful. But given how public this data is and people's tendency to play their higher SAS decks instead of their lowered, lowered SAS decks, as well as the gargantuan importance of your matchup in any given game, there's likely a number of very strong decks hiding in your collection that might not attract your attention if they're a bit lower on SAS. Dark Tidings specifically, of course, can have really any SAS range and per potentially be a strong deck depending on matchup, especially against non-Dark Tidings sets. And I've seen a number of decks that are really in the mid-70s that are actually very strong or have a fantastic meta matchup against something uh, much higher rated in SAS. So this takes a lot of Keyforge knowledge, of course, but you can get that just by pouring your time in just by pouring your time in. So I'd encourage you to do uh, to play through your decks, to test a few decks, to think about what would be what would be good a good meta call against what you might be seeing in an upcoming vault tour, right? Especially once Keyforge is to a point where we have information on what decks are making those top cuts, then you really have a lot of powerful information about what you can pick and what you can play that's going to do well against that, right? Trying to make that meta call and then pilot that deck really well. So that solution, of course, to finding those strong decks that are hidden is to play them, right? Especially against people you know, whom you can practice with, and you take notes across a few repetitions. I myself just really started thinking about the fact that even if I'm just going to lean on SAS as a shortcut to see what could be strong, right? 
I haven't played a lot of the top 20% of my decks, either because uh, I just don't think I'd be attracted to that deck's play style, or I was just having fun with some other deck. And if I want to take competition seriously, which I really am this time around with in-person Keyforge events, right, I've started to go through my, I want to go through my top, you know, 20% or so decks rated by SAS and actually give all those a fair shake, give all of them at least three to five plays and just see what happens. What do they come out with? What's really good about them? What can I really make happen with those decks? You know, do, do they have a good meta call? Are they perhaps not a A tier deck themselves, but maybe they've got a really good meta call if I see a whole lot of people bringing a similar kind of deck. So, and if all of this sounds like a lot of effort, <laughs> you've, you've assessed it correctly, right? Keyforge's premise gives many people hope for competitive success. There's no deck like yours. Be the best in the world at your deck, right? And I think that's appropriate and good, and that's true. Hope is good, right? When it comes to competition of any kind, even in Keyforge, however, hope is helpful, but it's not a substitute for hard, smart work towards your goal. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. So if you're hoping, hey, I can do well, I can just show up with any old deck and beat everything I see. But if you're showing up with any old deck, you're limiting yourself in just one way, unless that deck happens to be pretty strong or have some good matchups against the meta. But if you're not knowing what the archetypes are that you're going to see in Keyforge, those are many and varied, right? There's not just a handful of archetypes. There's a whole lot of different cards and interactions you might see, or even just one card. That's a terrible matchup for you, right? And so you might be limiting yourself on all these other factors, even if you're just picking this one kind of random deck, like your first Keyforge deck or something. And but if you're not if you're not training with it, if you're not practicing against a lot of kinds of different strong decks and that sort of thing, you're going to be limiting yourself. You're going to be limiting yourself. Your hope is good, but you've got to pair it with that that hard work of repetition and practice and smarts when it comes to all your matchups and all the cards you might see. Because if you want to play competitively, setting your expectations here is really important, right? Do you want to make the top eight? You're going to need to work on as many factors you can control as possible to try to make that happen. And if you're going to limit yourself on one or two, that's fine. Just, just know that you're doing that, right? Just know that you're doing that. Totally fine. That's how you want to play. That's how you want to do it. Do you want to go grab at least as many wins as you do losses in the group stage? That's very achievable with a halfway decent deck that you know well, right? That's very achievable. So once you've picked a goal, and it's a goal where you can commit to the practice it takes to get there, it's time to make a plan for that practice, right? And as a side note here, if you're just a normal human like me, very normal dude, right? I was not born, I did not, I was not born knowing how to play Keyforge great. Before the pandemic, I was not that great at Keyforge, right? You've got to find the right expectations, the right goals, and the right method of practice, the right structure, the right environment that makes all this work enjoyable, that makes this practice enjoyable. Because at the end of the day, as much as I'm talking so sweaty here and saying, hey, purchasing power is under your control if you have the funds, at the end of the day, Keyforge is a game, right? And you should be enjoying your time with it. You should be enjoying your time with it. If you've ever practiced an instrument or played a sport or honed a craft, this process uses all the same principles, right? And it's um and it's much easier to maintain that motivation if you're having uh, an enjoyable time doing it to some degree, and you have a good system, a good environment, some good discipline set in place. So on a personal level, my goals here, my expectations are to practice well and play my best, right? That's my expectations, to practice well and play my best. And my goal is to reach the top of at least one vault tour. 
you know, and I wouldn't be sad to come home with a cash prize either or an invite to Worlds, but I want to top eight at least one vault tour. And as soon as I do that, maybe then I'm trying to top eight the next one, right? That's my my personal goal. And my expectations are to practice well and play my best. So I can I can fulfill my expectations. That's completely under my control. And my goal, which is partly under my control, right, is to reach the top eight of at least one vault tour. So that's that's what I'm doing personally, you know, and what's your goal? Write it down. Reflect on it. Say, what do you want to go for? Who do you have in your KeyForge circle, whether online or in person, uh, that you can talk with about that goal and maybe set some goals together and, and reach it together? So let's, we're going to review all the factors that go into your competitive success and the control you can exercise in each, right? So there's deck strength, a many variable thing. Uh, and deck strength is where you can do the work and the research to see if you have a deck you already know inside and out or one that you own that you can practice that can perform well, that can perform on a level that will help you reach your goal. With enough testing and enough insight, you might be surprised at what you have. You might be surprised at what you have with enough testing and insight. So this is the part where I'm going to encourage you to say, you know, maybe you don't need to buy one. How many decks do you have? Have you actually really tested them all and taken a good, serious look at each one, right? At least maybe in, let's say, the top 20 to 30% rated by SAS, and then you're checking the others for some, some good meta calls or some things that are just completely not caught by SAS, right? So if you don't have anything you think on its own merit, you know, with your practice poured into it could perform competitively, then it's time to look at the secondary market for something strong that you would enjoy playing, right? One of those good keys to enjoying the practice is find a deck you even love playing when you lose. I bought a Dark Tidings deck, an Evil Twin deck off of the secondary market once, and I bought it because I was having fun when I tested it. Even when I lost, I was having a blast. And I said, you know, I could practice with this thing. I could practice with this thing a bunch and learn it and the skill the skill ceiling and the skill ceiling is so high I can't hardly see it and I might not even ever get there with this deck but oh my gosh I love practicing with it and it's pretty strong it's pretty strong it's a toolbox deck it's got all sorts of crazy recursion I enjoy this thing so much the double cur wallop doesn't hurt either against a whole lot of small token creatures right so that um that is that's been my approach. So deck strength, right? So do the work, do the work to see what you have. And then if you don't have something that you think you could pour some practice into that could then perform well, consider if you've got the capacity to buy something on the secondary market. And if you choose not to do that, and you could, and you choose not to do that, just know that that's something that's something you're giving up, right? That other people uh, are not giving up. Next, of course, and we've been talking about this really through each of the other factors too, is deck knowledge. What are your outs, right? What are your big plays you're trying to get to? Is it kind of this consistent, uh, is there a consistency to what your deck tries to do most turns that pushes you each turn towards your goal? Are there a couple of big outs you need to play towards? And these outs can change depending on your matchup, right? Knowing your matchup also helps you determine what are your outs in this particular game or this particular board state. So you're going to want to play your deck as much as you can. You're going to want to memorize the list of 36 cards that are in your deck that is uh, that is so important right that just cuts down on how much mental work you have to do during a game to know what's left what you've played what's coming up right you want to memorize your list of cards and take notes on your own outs and your matchups as you play. However, however notes work best for you, right? Maybe that's going to be uh, the, you know, just taking notes into your phone on the notes app and typing. Maybe that's a voice memo where you're recording and you're verbally processing, which for me is one of the best ways to take notes. I verbally process and I think of new things as I talk, right? 
And so you're going to want to know those outs. You're going to want to know those matchups. And you're going to want to know which of your opponent's cards and generated game states that really matter to you, that you can either take advantage of or are really dangerous for your deck. You know, things that either favor you or can be difficult obstacles, right? And so a great way to stay motivated here is to find a practice partner, right? So you can get this deck knowledge, somebody you can drill games with, talk about with, and who's enjoyable to do this process with, right? Somebody who serves as a good opponent and thinker alongside you who shares your goals. And the last thing I'll say about deck knowledge, right, is is just learn from your losses and win well, right? Practice with intent. When you win, think, why did I win? Did I make a great call? Was it a favorable matchup that I just really had to not mess up, right? Or did my opponent make a mistake that I took advantage of? Or did my opponent make a mistake that I didn't take advantage of and then that caused me a loss? Or I didn't take advantage of it and I still won, right? And when you lose, go through similar questions. You know, your losses are going to be a great teacher and your wins are going to be a good teacher too if you take it all seriously and you analyze it. And of course, if you don't enjoy this about Keyforge, that's fine. This is just, this is just for you if you want to practice and set some goals of doing well competitively right even if it's just at your locals right you're you're, you don't want to be there to just curb stomp you know everybody else but if you want to play well and be a strong player one of the best things to do at locals if people don't really want uh to be flooded with super powerful decks right is just take a medium strength deck take something kind of janky kind of interesting and i actually think this is better for learning if you take something kind of janky and interesting to a local event even a tournament and just play your hardest with this tech you're gonna learn more uh, in some cases, you're going to learn more from this kind of a deck in these kind of situations than you would with a really strong deck, right? You're going to learn perhaps a little bit more. Uh, and lastly, your mindset is one of the other big things under your control here. If you start to think, oh, I don't have a good deck. Uh, well, okay, I'll just play this and see what happens. And then you go into a match and, you know, you see generosity, double key abduction. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to get totally you know, totally stomped here. What you're not doing is thinking about your matchup. What you're not doing is thinking about, okay, how do I keep this person? How do I keep this person from just going off? How do I get them to six amber so that they forge and lose all that amber so that they can't pop off with their Martian generosity there, right? What is my best out against this deck? If this deck is performing really well, what do I need to do? And how do I press an advantage if they're actually not seeing that generosity until late or they saw it in their opening hand, right? That's all of those, you have completely different approaches to how you play against a Martian Generosity and Key Abduction deck. Uh, for the uninitiated, Martian Generosity is the old AOA card. It's an action card with an amber pip, and it says, lose all your amber, draw two cards for each amber lost this way. And so the combo, of course, is to play that, draw a ton of cards. Let's say you're at five, six, or seven amber, right? You're playing that, and then you're drawing usually double-digit cards. And then Key Abduction has an amber pip on it. It's an action card that says, play, return each Marge creature to its owner's hand, forge a key at plus, oh, I want to say it's plus 10 or plus 7 or so, uh, forge a key at plus a lot current cost minus one for each card in your hand. And so what Martian Generosity does is you draw a ton of extra cards and then you play a couple key abductions to forge some free or very cheap keys. And there are ways to play around this. Yes, it is very strong, but there's some ways to play around this, especially if the Martian Generosity player is having a bad role, right? And so your mindset matters for even opening the door for you to know, to think about this matchup and to strategize and, and, and think tactically about this matchup. So going in, go in boldly open-handed, right? You know you might lose. That is always on the table when you sit down to a game of Keyforge. You might lose. 
but play as hard as you can for that win while being, you know, while being uh, clearly communicating, while, you know, being very respectful of your opponent, right? Of being a pleasant person to to play with, uh, but a serious person to play with. Take the game seriously. Play well. Know that losing is always on the table and know that you're going to be moving towards that win as hard as you can, as thinking as strategically as you can, trying to make good plays, making the best of the situation in front of you. Because that's the heart of Keyforge, right? Your mindset is one of the keys to being able to play well competitively. It it helps you, it enables you to really enjoy the experience as much as you can, and also just clears the way for you to for you to be able to think clearly and strategically about what's in front of you, about the matchup, bringing all of your knowledge to bear to play the best you can. And of course, there's also meta knowledge, right? What are the other cards that you're going to see there? What's winning at tournaments? You're going to want to know the card pool. I personally recommend, (laughs) now I know some people will disagree with me, but I personally recommend you memorize uh, all the cards that you're going to see. But if you don't do that, knowing amber control and creature control cards are your biggest priority, right? Depending on your deck's play style, in addition to any cards that you know are, are going to be hard counters to what your deck wants to do. Knowing what the cards do without having to strain your memory to recall them will free up more of your time and energy during a match to make informed decisions. Because the creature control and amber control are things that, you know, you could accidentally play into and create a situation where their creature control, their amber control really, really takes you and and, and just generates a huge advantage for your opponent, right? But even things that aren't creature control or amber control, you're going to want to play knowing generally what kind of game state those could create so that you are playing you are playing the smartest in relation to what kind of game states they could create. So I do think no, <laughs> I do think that if you want to be really competitive, knowing all the cards you could see is good. However, I know this is a tall task, especially if you're coming back to Keyforge. Um, and there are ways, right, flash card makers going through Archon, Arcana, to really get familiar with all of the cards as much as you can in their specific wording. Because knowing what the cards do without having to strain your memory to recall them will free up more of your time and energy during a match to make informed decisions. At the end of the day, you need to own your play experience in Keyforge, right? There will be many fun side events at the Vault Tours along with exclusive goodie bags for our amazing community. So it's honestly worth going to the Vault Tours no matter what experience you're you're looking for. There's going to be sealed events that you know don't lead to cash prizing and worlds, but there's going to be fun sealed events, side events, um, and just really getting to know the community and socializing. So I think it's worth it, whoever you are, to go to a Vault Tour. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be so fun, right? Whatever season of Vault Tours you're going to. And you've just got to own your play experience, set your own expectations, set some expectations that you have control over and set a goal that you know you could hit, you know, if you practice well and you keep to those expectations, right? Because here's the thing that Keyforge has offered us, right, as a game. Keyforge is a paradigm shift for card games and has some of the most meaningful player relationships between players and the decks they play, right? These are these are, are unique talismans. There's literally no other deck like this one sitting in front of me, right? I'm the only one who knows it. Maybe this deck has some secret sauce I can use and rise to the top at a vault tour, right? There's the amazing stories of decks and pilots in this game. That's amazing. So there's hope and there's 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 this this epic storytelling to it, right? And the competitive side is still a competition. There's going to be ups and downs for playing for real stakes. And that's all going to be augmented by how meaningful the decks in this game are. So 
you know, take your hope, take your excitement, and then look at competition, look at look at the reality of a vault tour, look at the meta, look at your look at your collection and say, okay, what are my goals? What are my expectations? How can I reach those given my limited time, given my the resources I'm willing to spend on this? What can I achieve? And what am I going to enjoy? Right? What am I going to enjoy? What fits into my life right now? So figure out what your expectations are. Make sure you're going to enjoy the process. Figure out some environment that helps you there, right? Even if it is hard work. And that's part of the reason why I started Keyforge Public Radio, to focus on creating a more informed Keyforge player primarily through a strategy talk, right? Because I enjoy that practice. I enjoy drilling different matchups and taking notes on all those things, right? Do you want to pick your favorite deck that you know inside and out and then just see how well you can do with it? That's great. Just like max out your number of wins with your favorite deck, no matter how strong it is. And, you know, add a competition. Do you want to make the jump and really actually try for the top eight? Do you want to look at what Keyforge decks won Keyforge Celebration in November of 2022 and what people are chatting about online and try to make a meta call, right? Put on your sweats, your training montage music, and jog up the stairs at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and get ready for Apollo Creed, right? And it's up to you to pick who your Apollo Creed is here or what your Apollo Creed is to you. Because this is all up to you. You're owning your play experience. And as long as you want to become a more informed Keyforge player, and hey, maybe even a better Keyforge player, I'll be here with you every Wednesday. Keyforge Public Radio is produced by Rooster High Productions, which is me. If you have any questions about how a podcast produced by me could serve your business, organization, or expertise, send me an email at zach at roosterhigh.com. To support KPR in our mission to provide the community with resources and raise the profile of this amazing game, join the Patreon, where you will vote on what content is next, discuss the show and share ideas, and receive discounts in the merch store. Speaking of the merch store, what better way to show off your love of Keyforge and this show by buying a KPR hat, shirt, or even a pair of sandals? On our website, KeyforgePublicRadio.com, you can read show notes, blog posts, and more, so give that a visit. Stay engaged with the show by following us on any social media platforms you frequent. Just search for Keyforge Public Radio. And remember, dear listener, the most important part of Keyforge is the person across the table. <laughs>